It's Monday, October 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and is being treated at Walter Reed Military Hospital. Trump's doctors say that he is improving and could be discharged soon, but there have been conflicting messages. The course of treatment he is receiving does not point to mild symptoms of coronavirus. Also, while we don't know the exact point at which President Trump contracted the virus, it seems that last week's Rose Garden ceremony for Judge Amy Coney Barrett could be the super-spreading event. Others in the president's circle who also attended the event have also tested positive. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, Palantir, a secretive data analytics company with ties to law enforcement and the defense and intelligence communities, has just begun publicly trading on the New York Stock Exchange with a $21 billion valuation. BuzzFeed News has obtained two LAPD training manuals showing that at great taxpayer expense, Palantir has helped the LAPD set up a vast database of names, addresses, phone numbers, license plates, jobs, and more from the people that live in the city. Critics say that this amounts to more surveillance of the public and that innocent people can be swept up into the searches that police do on the platform. Caroline Haskins, technology reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for how it all works. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We wish the president and the first lady and his family well. Uh, I'm sure his children are nervous, uh, and they should be. That's the nature of this disease. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The president has been diagnosed with COVID-19. He's been undergoing treatment at Walter Reed Military Hospital. Uh, Ginger, I wanted to first start off by talking about the treatment that he's been receiving. There's been questions about his oxygen levels, whether he's been given oxygen. We do know that he has been now. Uh, he received exper- an experimental treatment by Regeneron. This is this monoclonal antibodies treatment at the hospital. He's received remdesivir, and now he's on uh, dexamethasone, which is a steroid to uh, an anti-inflammatory, all this. Uh, a lot of this points to this maybe being more than just mild symptoms. I know he's the president, and they're going to throw everything they can at him, but there's been a lot of conflicting messages from the White House right now. That's right. So as of Sunday afternoon, we've received two briefings from the president's doctor about his condition and the ongoing treatment. And neither of those briefings has really left us in a place where we completely understand what's going on. But to be clear, as you said, he's on an elaborate cocktail of drugs, some of which, including uh, the steroid, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, (laughs) that you mentioned. Dexamethasone. Dexamethasone, there we go, um, is really reserved for pretty serious cases. When asked, the doctor has said at one point that they are giving him an aggressive treatment because he is the president. But because he's the president and we're aware of this, it's also raised questions about whether or not his condition is more serious, perhaps, than the tone that we're hearing from his doctor. And we also got a little bit of mixed signals. We saw his doctor on Saturday stand up and really sort of paint a picture of a president who wasn't that ill. And then White House aides almost immediately afterwards coming back to say, but he had been very sick, they were very concerned, and that he wasn't out of the woods yet. He has put out a few videos, and I mean, he looks okay. If he was bedridden or or something much more worse, I don't think they'd be putting out those videos. So maybe it's not a, a terrible situation. Hopefully it's not, and we hope that he recovers quickly. But 
all this kind of back and forth really just uh, makes for more questions than anything else. And again, like you said, we've seen him. We know that he's able to get up, to walk around, to record these videos. And I think that's reassuring to the American public that the president continues to have a condition that allows him to do that. But it's important to remember that this is not a disease that comes and goes in the first few days. There are still days ahead where there's going to be a lot of questions about his condition. And adding to that uh, confusion, you know, the doctor said he could be ready to go home as early as Monday. So, you know, what is it? Uh, There's a lot of questions on that. Uh, I did want to talk about kind of the timeline of the president uh, contracting coronavirus and all this. It, It seems more and more like the White House is the new hotspot there after the uh, Rose Garden ceremony where he announced Judge Amy Coney Barrett to be the nominee for next Supreme Court justice. A lot of people that were there have come down with coronavirus. Advisors, family members, other senators have come down with it, and and it seems to kind of have stemmed from there maybe. Yeah, we don't know the moment the president caught the coronavirus or who it was that gave the president the coronavirus. But like you said, there's now a lot of people around the president who have the coronavirus, particularly a number of senators and aides who were at that Rose Garden event a week ago. And just it is pointing to signs pointing to that being a real spreading event. But we also see others, the president's personal aide, his body man has tested positive. And Chris Christie, who was at that event, but also was with him doing debate prep ahead of Tuesday's debate also tested positive. So it's clear that this event might be viewed as a a center or focal point of the disease at some point. Yeah, at that event specifically, there were about 150 people. We've seen the videos and pictures. A lot of people were not wearing masks and, and being very close to each other. They're saying that the contract tracing from that event is very difficult. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of potential other people that might have been exposed to this. And beyond that, you know, the president was still going to rallies. It was at the debate. We don't know exactly when he got it, but given that Friday he was starting to get some some symptoms, you know, you kind of guess that he had it a few days before that. So lots of people that he came in contact with. That's right. So we're talking about a near impossible uh, way to try to contact trace this. And in fact, you can look at the state of Minnesota where he had a rally. State officials were asked if they're going to try to contact trace. And they said, look, (laughs) if you were around the president, you should have figured it out by now that you need to be careful that you came into contact with someone who had the disease. We're not going to try to contact trace. We put out a statement that says, you know who you are. You know who has it. Do it. Do what you're supposed to be doing. What uh, what happens now with the campaign, you know, and other issues? There's a few senators that have come down with coronavirus as well. Will this push back the uh, hearings, the nomination hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett? The campaign says Operation MAGA is still going to keep going. There's going all the top surrogates are going to be hitting the campaign, a- and Joe Biden, he's been hitting the campaign trail again. There's some polls showing double digit leads for him now. What happens to the campaign now? The president is obviously not going to be able to hold campaign rallies, and he's really the draw of his campaign. They are going to send Mike Pence out to hold rallies, but don't expect him to get the same kind of crowds that the president got. Um, and also remember, the president's campaign manager has contracted the disease. So yeah. this is something that's affecting uh, his staff as well, but they maintain that they're going to continue to push forward, that they're going to continue to work. As for the Senate, Senator McConnell has sent the Senate home into the 19th, uh, likely to try to prevent it from 
from spreading even worse. If he has members that can't return that week, we could see a delay in them getting Amy Coney Barrett approved to the Supreme Court. But they also intend to move forward with confirmation hearings this week, so um, or next week, so in the weeks ahead. So I think it's the 12th that they start. So uh, they're trying to push forward, even though this is really kind of uh, has the potential to slow things down. What about the effect on President Trump's supporters? Uh, We know the president was downplaying this early on. He now has it. Uh, Is there any effect? We are seeing some polling that was already prior to the diagnosis showing that the public did not take too well to his debate performance, that his numbers were looking like they could fall. And we've also seen a poll that came out, a quick poll, uh, that thought that the president could have avoided catching the disease if he had taken it more seriously. That does not speak well uh, to his ability to recover politically from this, especially given the fact that he was already down in the polls. I think we could see real serious political effects beyond the health effects on the president from having contracted the disease. Well, as I mentioned, we wish him a speedy recovery and we're constantly, you know, seeing little updates here and there. So we'll see how it continues to go. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And the important thing here is that Palantir sort of reinforced policing practices that made laser tick. So a large part of laser was conducting a lot of field interviews and getting as much information as possible about who might be in a gang, who knows who, et cetera, and then uploading it onto Palantir. Joining us now is Caroline Haskins, technology reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a company named Palantir. Uh, they are a data analytics company. They have ties to the defense and intelligence communities. They have deals with law enforcement agencies across the country in different forms or fashion. They just went through their uh, initial public offering. They got a $21 billion valuation on its uh, debut trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So this is a big company. It's been around for a while. But there at BuzzFeed News, uh, you guys obtained some information about how it partners with law enforcement agencies. This one specifically has to do with the LAPD and how it works, how they're able to search, do these really targeted searches of people, scars, tattoos, license plates, whatever they want to find out. It's called predictive policing. There's a lot that goes into this. So, Caroline, tell us what you guys are finding out. So, basically, Palantir has been working with the LAPD since 2009. Palantir was one of the like first softwares that the LAPD started using as a part of this program called Laser, which was basically a strategic extraction and restoration program that involved making bulletins of people that they predicted might commit a crime in the future. So Palantir's role in this was to sort of look up people that police had their eyes on. And the important thing here is that Palantir sort of reinforced policing practices that made laser tick. So a large part of laser was conducting a lot of field interviews and getting as much information as possible about who might be in a gang, who knows who, et cetera, and then uploading it onto Palantir. And then over time, this sort of web of information sort of spreads out. So there's really like more than 10 years of information in here. And it's not just from LA. It's from dozens, dozens of neighboring cities. It's from school districts. There's data from the Los Angeles Police School District, the Compton Unified School District. And then when this all gets loaded into Palantir, police can conduct extremely targeted searches. They can start with just male, Hispanic, 
rosary tattoo. I think that's actually something that's from one of the training guides. And then police are sort of told to save those results and they can chart these people by who their friends are and that kind of thing. And one of the important things to note here is that Palantir has been a really central part of the LAPD's work in terms of policing gangs. But the LAPD has actually been punished really for putting inaccurate information into gang databases because a lot of this sort of information about who they suspect is in a gang is based off of word of mouth. And yet Palantir is building up these entire profiles of people that might be in a gang, people who might be friends with someone that's in a gang, etc. And so a lot of the concerns from activists and from people in the community is that basically Palantir is being used to reinforce police practices that were problematic in the first place. As you were mentioning, it kind of goes far beyond that. You put in a search, it can come up since it takes other things like license plates, addresses, partnerships with school districts. And as you were saying, it can bring up friends and family, other people that might not necessarily be associated with these people on a normal basis, and they can come up in these lists as well. So how widespread is this, let's say, in the LAPD? It seems like, as you mentioned, they've been in business together for about 10 years or so or more. How many of the LAPD officers are using this system? Over 5,000. So the most recent numbers that we have are from 2016, so they're a little bit outdated. But at the time, 5,000 out of the 9,000 officers were using volunteers. So that's over half. And now, even though laser has ended, they're using this new program, and it's a mouthful. It's called the Data-Informed Community-Focused Policing Program. And that involves using Palantir to sort of monitor people that are on parole and to create lists of people who might commit property crimes in addition to violent crimes. And the scale of the records inside Palantir is really huge. There's hundreds of millions of police records in there because, again, it's not just from L.A. It's from the DMV. It's from all of these surrounding precincts, and it's from school districts and university colleges. This isn't just an L.A. thing. This is a really regional force. And in terms of, you mentioned license plate readers. So Palantir also works by integrating with ALPR or automatic license plate reader data. So you can search by a car maker model. You can search one or a couple of digits from the license plate, the color, really just any information you can have about a car, and you can come up with a bunch of results, vehicle identification numbers, and you can see any time it was pictured going through one of those traffic light cameras, a toll booth camera, and then you can see who the vehicle is registered to and find out everything about that person as well. What has the LAPD said about their partnership and how successful it's been? Has it led to arrest or lower crime or anything like that? The LAPD has argued that using Palantir is an investigative tool. And yes, that's true. And they argued in the context of laser that it helped reduce crime. But there isn't really much evidence to support that. If you really look at the numbers, the inspector general for the Los Angeles Police Department did this big audit of a bunch of records pertaining to Palantir and Predpol, which was a predictive policing tool Um, the LAPD discontinued using last year. Anyway, so they looked at all of these records and they found that only in one police district, Newton, there was a slight decrease in crime, but it didn't hold. And for almost all of the other policing districts, crime either stayed the same or got worse. So there's really no evidence that any of this is actually helping keep, keep communities safer. What the evidence does suggest is that using Palantir 
incentivizes police to increase the surveillance that it's conducting on the people of Los Angeles. Because if they don't have fresh data to feed into Palantir, the software is worthless. BuzzFeed News obtained a bunch of training manuals for their officers uh, on how to use Palantir, some uh, intermediate and advanced training guides. There are eight-hour courses that explain how to use all of this stuff on the job. What did you guys learn from those training guides? So a lot of times we noticed that they were sort of starting from details such as race. We noticed that they were often seemingly obtaining data from telecom companies like Verizon and using that to get information about people who were placing calls, where they were at the time. We saw in a couple of instances filtering out people who were either mentioned in field interviews or gave a field interview, and a bunch of branches of connections came out from there. It really just reinforced how like, powerful and easy it is to get so much information about a person right at their fingertips. I mean, you can start with almost nothing and then end up with a person's apartment number and phone number, maybe even their email. You can find out who their neighbors are. And this all occurs within a couple of minutes because these training guides over the course of eight hours, I mean, they're many, many pages long. And it's important to note that, again, thousands and thousands of officers have access to this really, really powerful tool. It's not like this is a really exclusive tool. It's very widely used. These technologies like Palantir and others are are part of this trend of data-driven policing. What do critics say about how to go about using this data-driven policing method? So the idea behind data-driven policing, I mean, ideally, would be just to use evidence to support your policing activities. But what critics have said is that in practice, it often just involves using these technological tools that make something that relies on a lot of personal judgment seem objective or like a science. And in actuality, the end result is that communities aren't actually safer, people don't actually trust the police more, and crime isn't actually getting lower. And yet the idea behind these tools is that, you know, it's going to, I I think the term that someone that I interviewed was uh, the veneer of objectivity. It's the appearance of something that's more numbers driven than it actually is. And and as you mentioned earlier, this, uh, you know, these types of systems are nothing without constant input of new data. So people kind of say that this is more police surveillance, really, because they're just constantly getting information on everybody. And then you kind of end up in this database, whether they search for you or not, or whatever, you could kind of be wrapped up into it. Right, exactly. You know, especially considering that DMV data is in here. A tool like Palantir would be powerful, even if it was just dealing with uh, with booking photos. But the fact that it's pulling from so many different sources, both public and private, near and far from the area that it's directly serving, um, it really makes it an extremely powerful tool. And this goes beyond the scope of policing that I think most people know or understand. I'd be curious to see if Palantir gets a little more scrutiny now that uh, being training uh, now that it's being traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And obviously they've had relationships with so many law enforcement agencies for so many years now. Uh, like I said, I'd just be curious to see if there's more scrutiny on, on these types of things. Carolyn Haskins, technology reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.